Our world is fascinated with predictions. Our natural curiosities as people usually lead us to want to predict future outcomes. We see this here even in, in, in our province right now. Everyone is sort of predicting when the, when the writ will come down and an election will be called. And after it's called, almost every day on the newcast, you're going to hear the latest polling results. The political parties use these polls as predictors, which in turn dictate how they are going to run their campaign. If the polls predict that a party is losing ground, they're going to try different tactics than uh, if they're leading in the polls. And so predictions become very important in, in any sort of political campaigns. Now this fascination with predictions touches many different areas. The whole gambling industry is really predicated on predictions. Meteorologists predict the weather. Analysts predict the stock market. It even gets a little weird sometimes. When people want to know about their future, they really count on their horoscope. Or they go to see a, a psychic or a palm reader. Or to read their tarot cards, whatever it might be. This all comes from a desire to know the future. And it's not any different with Christians, who also seem to be fascinated with predicting the future. If you go to any Christian bookstore, one of the biggest sections will have to do with books that deal with prophecy. The most popular conferences are prophecy conferences. Things, anything to do with the end times or, or predictions about the timing of the end of the age. Even the media jumps on this when some pastor predicts that the Lord's going to come on May 21st while the media is fascinated with, with what's going to happen. Well, the disciples of Jesus wanted to know about the future too. But I want to ask this morning, when Jesus taught about the end, is this what he had in mind? Was his number one goal to have Christians work diligently to try to figure out and to predict and to calculate the date of his second coming? Well, we know that God himself talked a lot about the end times and what he revealed in his word. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament talk a lot about the end, what we call eschatology. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was also concerned that we know something about the end of the age. So in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we've made it now to chapter 13. And as Pastor Wayne read to us, this is a section where Jesus talks to his disciples about his return. And so I want to try to answer the question of how Jesus wants us to think about the future. Mark 13 is one of those sections in the Bible that can sort of leave your head spinning. When I looked at uh, some of uh, what smarter people than me said about Mark 13, here's what I read. Kent Hughes writes, This is by far the most difficult passage in the book of Mark, and one of the most difficult texts in the whole New Testament. Another commentator added that Mark 13 is one of the most perplexing chapters in the whole Bible to understand. Well, if scholars find this perplexing, where does that leave me? But we're going to 
continue on because hard words make soft hearts. Even though we don't, won't go into every detail this morning, it'll be helpful to look a little closer as to why Jesus said what he said. I think the reason prophetic passages like this are confusing is that they are talking about future events. We like reading about events that have happened already. It's always easier to say something definite about something that's happened in the past. But it's a little harder trying to figure out future events. But here in Mark 13, we'll see that Jesus was not so much wanting to wanting us to get out our calculators and to get out our time charts to try to predict when he's coming back. No, he's more concerned that we know he is coming back and that our knowledge of that fact would affect the way we live now. This chapter is not chiefly about how to figure out all the details about the second coming. That's not why Jesus wrote this. It's more about how we respond to the fact that he's coming again. Why do I say that? Well, the main reason is because of the sheer number of commands in this chapter. I counted, actually, 17 different imperatives, 17 different commands. Now, if Jesus wrote this so that we could predict the exact time of his coming, he wouldn't have put in all these commands. He would have just given us information. But the chapter is more about exhortation than about information. His main purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It's to encourage his disciples and to comfort them, to instruct them, to prepare them and us to live in light of the fact that he is coming again. And so while there's lots of interesting little things we could explore here, we want, us, we want to see how Jesus shows us how the truth of the second coming ought to impact our lives. The context of this passage is that this happens during the last couple of days, as you know, before Jesus will be crucified. These were some of, of Jesus' last words that he spoke to his disciples before he would go to the cross. This scene happens as, verse 1, Jesus came out of the temple. Those very words are significant. The temple re- represented the whole identity of the Jewish religious system and for the last thousand years before this. By leaving the temple here, Jesus denounces that entire religious system that they had set up, and so he leaves the temple. And he takes it even further. When a disciple notices, as they've left now, how beautiful the temple looks there in the background, says, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus says this. He says, you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. That comment could have totally... It would have totally stopped the disciples in their tracks. They, they saw how beautiful it was, and it was indeed beautiful. The temple had, at the, by this point, had been undergoing a massive reconstruction under the orders of King Herod. Uh, a secular historian named Josephus, who lived in that time that the temple was destroyed, he talked about the size of the stones as being 25 cubits long, 8 cubits high, and 12 cubits deep. That's one stone about the size of a boxcar that you would see on the train tracks. One stone. Josephus described the beauty of the temple as white and strong, stones plated with gold, shining like the snowy mountains. This is what the disciples were marveling at when they left the temple. It was one impressive structure. 
I'm sure that most of the people that saw it thought that this whole thing would be indestructible. Nothing would ever destroy that. Yet here's Jesus saying, not one stone will be left upon another. That would have been a shocking prediction. But as we know from history, this prediction came true in 70 AD, just some 40 years later, when the temple is totally destroyed by the Romans. And just like Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another. It was totally leveled. Now why would Jesus say this? He said this because it was a judgment on the Jewish leaders. The temple was the center of their identity. It was the place where God was present. Yet Jesus prophesied its destruction. And so it becomes a word of judgment. God was removing his presence from the people. And it pointed ahead to the end of the world where Jesus would come again to judge the world and destroy the earth as we know it. The destruction of the temple foreshadowed the destroying of the earth. And with that, we want to jump in and look at Jesus' answer, asking ourselves, what does Jesus want us to know about the end of the world, and how does he tell us to respond to what will happen? What does he want us to know about the end, and how does he want us to respond? So after Jesus and his disciples get back to the Mount of Olives, four of his disciples there, with a the temple spread out before him in all its splendor and its beauty, ask Jesus when this destruction will happen and what the signs will be. They want to know when and what. And so Jesus lets loose on this great prophetic sermon, telling them certain things about the end, and more importantly, how they should respond. And so the first thing Jesus wants his disciples and us to know is that there will, in fact, be an end. This is what he means when he says, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The things that you see, even the most beautiful monuments will not last. They're temporary. They'll all be subject to judgment and mass destruction. And not only will they not last, they'll be torn down in the most brutal of ways. This is the way Jesus talks about the end. It's, it's a fearful thing. It's a scary thing. You can see that as you go through this chapter. He talks about his followers being delivered over to both religious and political authorities there in verse 9. He says even their own families or we could even extend that to the family of God. The church will turn against them and even kill them. In verse 12. And then later, in a time he calls the tribulation, he tells them to run for the hills. Get out of there. Don't, don't go back to your house. Don't even stop to get a coat. Just go. These will be scary times. He wants them to know there will be an end. They can count on it. But in the midst of this fear and destruction... Don't miss this. There's also a sense of hope that shows up in this chapter. While there will indeed be an end, there will also be a beginning. Look down at verse 26. After all these horrifying things that he talks about, Jesus says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. For Christians... The second coming is a time of great hope, a time of great expectation. It's the, it's the consummation of God's grand purposes. And it's the beginning of eternity. In Luke's version of this sermon, in Luke 21, verse 28, Jesus says that when he comes, we should straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
This is talking about our final redemption from sin. It's talking about the completion of our salvation when our body of sin will be done away with, when the effects of sin will be over. That's why we look forward to the end. The effects of this sinful world will be done. Cancer will be done. And we get to see Christ. This is a a new beginning for everyone who is in Christ. And so Jesus affirms that there will be an end to the earth. The earth as we know it, the sin-stained, sin-ravaged earth, will be destroyed by God on a cosmic scale. Even the sun and the moon and the stars, all of it will be destroyed at the final judgment. But in this mass destruction, something remains. There is something permanent. Verse 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God will not be silenced by this destruction. His word, his voice, his presence remains just as before. So there's hope. The end of this earth means a new beginning for Christians. The most important thing that you need to know about the end is not the timing. It's that Christ is coming back. That's what we're waiting for. We eagerly anticipate, Titus 2 says, the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you look forward to that? Or have you bought into the default mindset of our world where you just think everything in this world will last forever? Even as believers, even though we know in our heads that Christ is coming again, we sometimes live as if everything will stay the way it always is, don't we? Don't get trapped into that way of thinking. Understand that everything here, and ultimately the earth itself, is temporary. It won't last. So set your mind on the things above. Know that Jesus is coming again. Let that truth affect all of your life. Let it affect your career. Let it affect your parenting choices. Let it affect your your purchases. Let it affect your financial options. Let it affect your retirement plans. It affects everything. Well, the second thing that Jesus wants us to know about the end of this age concerns the timing. Can we know when the end of the world is coming? That was one of the disciples' questions. When will these things be and what will be the sign? They wanted to know something about the timing and and they want to know what they can expect to happen before that. And so Jesus tells them some of the things that they can expect. But most of these signs that were, were, were things that were already happening. People will come claiming to be the Messiah. He says, see, one, see that no one leads you astray. Back in verse 5. We see this already from time to time with various cult leaders claiming, I'm the Messiah that has come. And then he says there will be wars and rumors of wars. Well, These have been happening throughout history. We don't have to wait for these to happen. In fact, the 20th century, I think, there's records that say it uh, had the most wars in, in all history before that. And so all these things have been happening for a long time, and they're still happening. And so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we're living in the end times now. The birth pains have already started. And just as a woman in labor, they'll get more and more pronounced the closer we get. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to be keeping track? Are we supposed to be sort of making a list and and checking off these things and saying, okay, one more sign done? 
know, check them off? Well, not really. What does Jesus say? He says, when you hear of these things, do not be alarmed. These things are but the beginning of the birth pains. In fact, he tells them that when you get persecuted, there's something else you should do rather than make charts. Verse 9 says, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The, the end will be an opportunity to witness to the same people that oppose you. You see, the persecution that accompanies the beginning of these birth pains shouldn't discourage us. Rather, they can be for us a means to share the gospel. Unless you say, I can't do that, that's too hard. Jesus says, verse 11, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a comforting word? Yes, there will be opposition. Yes, you might not know what to say. But you can be assured of God's presence. And not only his presence, but his very words. The end times, these times, are an opportunity to share your faith. So Jesus wants us to know, one, that there will be an end, which should make us look forward ahead to, Christ, ahead to Christ coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And two, he wants us to know what things accompany the end, but not so that we turn to our prophecy charts. Rather, we should see these signs as an opportunity to share the gospel, to point people towards Christ, so that they can look forward to his second coming. In hope, just like us, and not in fear of judgment. Well, finally, Jesus ends this chapter with two parables. And these two parables really hone in on what Jesus wants us to think about and how Jesus wants us to think about the future and what those thoughts should drive us to do. The first one is the parable of the fig tree there, starting in verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson, Jesus says. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, we don't have fig trees here, but this is true of any tree. It's true of our trees here too. When the branch becomes tender and the sap starts running through the branches, which we hope is not too far away, we know summer isn't far away. The point is that Jesus could come at any moment. He is near, as verse 29 says. Like I said before, many of these signs are already happening. We don't need to wait for certain things to start happening before we can even start thinking about the end. We are in the end times. Jesus could come before this day is over. Do you believe that? Again, this is reason for hope. He says this to give perspective to the tribulations and the sufferings that he just talked about in verses 14 to 19. And so for us as believers, these, don't, these signs don't need to drive us to discouragement or to fear. They should encourage us because his coming is at hand. Know that he is near. When the leaves come, we know the blossoms and fruit aren't too far away. And so Jesus tells us to learn from the parable of the fig tree. Learn to eagerly expect Jesus to come back Make sure you're ready. Well, the last thing Jesus wants us to know about the second coming is that it will be a surprise. In other words, 
Jesus wants us to know that while we can't know exactly when the second coming will happen, we should be ready. Look at verses 31 and 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not angels, and get this, nor the Son, only the Father. The earthly Jesus, the incarnate God, during the time when he was on earth voluntarily limiting his knowledge, didn't even know the timing of that day. His very last words to the disciples tell us the same thing. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus uses an illustration of a doorkeeper waiting for his master to return from a trip. Look at verse 35. It is like a, it's like a man, so this is a parable. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts, and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Now, they didn't have cell phones back then. The master couldn't call ahead to the doorkeeper and just say, you know, I'm just in Millet, I'll be there in 10 minutes. No. Maybe 15 if you're driving the speed limit. He just tells the doorman before he leaves, be ready when I get back. You won't know when I'll be back, but when I do get back, make sure you're not sleeping. This is a, a parable. The master represents Jesus himself. The journey represents the time between Jesus ascended back up to heaven and his second coming, which is the time that we're in right now. This master is telling his slaves, he's telling his disciples, he's telling us to be ready and to keep busy with certain tasks. Be on guard. Stay awake. He wants them to know that the end will be a surprise. And Jesus wants us to know that we shouldn't use our remaining time just counting the days until he's come, looking up at the clouds, just waiting. No, he has something else in mind for us. Our response to the future coming of Jesus is that we should be ready. We should be prepared. This is a call for vigilance. Three times here he tells us to stay awake or or to be alert. Well, When we know there's an end, it can lead to two extreme behaviors that we should make sure that we don't get trapped into. One is that it can lead us to be ignorant of the future. We know Christ is coming, we say, but that's in the future. It's a a long way down the road. We don't even need to think about that now. There's more important stuff to think about. I'll just do what I want now, and then, you know, judgment is later. Well, a biblical illustration of that error is found in the story of Noah. Remember that story where after God had warned them, they, they just kept on with their sinfulness? Luke 17, 27 says, Just as it happened in the day of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking until that day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The fact that the end is not here yet had better not make you relax and get complacent especially in regard to your spiritual life and even in your moral life. Don't be ignorant of the future. The Master is coming back, and He could be back at any time. Let that knowledge drive you to be like Christ. 
going to drive you toward holy living. While the other extreme is that knowing about the end can lead you to ignore the present. Paul warns the Thessalonians about this repeatedly. They were so sure that the second coming was just around the corner that they stopped working. They just sat around and waited. Paul said, don't do that. Don't be ignorant of the future, but don't have your head in the clouds so much that you're ignorant of the fact that, that you need to stay at it until he does come. Don't let the master find you asleep when he comes. Keep working. Serve others. Disciple someone. Encourage someone. And even all the more as you see the day approaching, stay vigilant. Share the gospel while there's still time. Be holy. Be actively alert. So Mark 13 is not a call for us to make sure that we buy the latest prophecy book or go to the next conference or to try to figure out who the Antichrist is or to, to spend your time trying to figure out how the, the UN fits in the end time scenario. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should not be concerned about the signs of the end. I believe Scripture tells us both here and other places to be aware of the signs of Christ's coming. But that's not Jesus' main concern for us. That's not what he wants us to be all about. The only thing that he wants us to be doing. His, his concern for you that are already his followers is that you should be aware of the reality that Jesus is indeed coming again and that that knowledge should lead you not to live fearfully and not to just sit there and wait, but to trust God and to live hopefully and, and profitably and preparedly in light of his coming. Well, just a word for you if you happen to be here today and are not a believer. How does the end affect your future? Well, you need to be asking, what will happen to me when I see the Son of Man coming in the clouds? Will I be counted among those elect whom the angels will gather together, like verse 27 says? If you have not trusted Christ with your life, if your hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ alone for your future, then you need to make sure you are prepared for his return. He is coming. Christ is coming again as a judge. First time he came as Savior, the second time he's coming as judge. And God can only accept perfection, as we learned about last week. And, if, and, and we're all sinners deserving of death. That is a problem. And so you need something or someone to atone for your sins. Now, if you just keep reading after Mark 13, you'll find out that the same person who said these things in chapter 13 is going to be arrested in chapter 14 and 15. If you read this, you'll ask, how could this happen? Why would they kill someone like Jesus? Well, we know that the Jews rejected Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of God, but behind and underneath all of this is God's eternal purpose. God planned before the ages to send a Savior, to send someone who could atone for the sins of humankind, someone who would bear the punishment that you deserved. In his love, he sent his own son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Bible says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Hard to fathom, isn't it? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so by dying on the cross, Christ, God, 
has pardoned all those who will repent of their sins, which means to turn away from your sins, and to put your faith, which means turning towards Jesus, turning towards the work of Jesus on the cross. Make sure you do that today. Don't wait another minute. You could die at any moment or Jesus could come at any moment. If you want to be sure that you'll be among those gathered at the second coming of Christ, if you want to be sure of your future, if you want to be sure that talk of the end of the world fills you with hope instead of fear, then put your your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you, now that you know all this about the end, let it drive you to the same place that Jesus went to next, to the cross. This same Jesus that announced that he was coming back in the clouds with great power and glory was about to be beaten. He's about to be humiliated. He's about to be shamed. He's about to be mocked. He's about to be killed. But that was not the end of the story. He would be raised again. And he has promised to come back again. Are you actively watching? Are you vigilantly on the alert? Are you prepared for his coming? Let's pray.